Dotnet Rocks episode 727 with guest Steve McConnell. Recorded live Friday, December 2nd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. What's up, Mr. Campbell? Not much, my friend. How about you? You know, I am so into speech oh, lately yeah. that I wrote, um, and this was one of the things that I, you know, it was one of those four o'clock in the morning things. You look up and it's 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> I wanted to write a 20 questions game because, you know, they, they sell these little plastic toys that tell you to think of something and then they ask you all these questions and they narrow it down and they guess what you're, you guess is what you're thinking of. And of course, it's just this little text display and you answer yes or no to all the questions. And it's kind of eerie how it works, but it's just a, basically a bee tree tree, you know, a tree of nodes. And um, every node has a yes node and a no node attached to it. So you just walk down the tree, and when it gets to a node with two null references at the end, there's no yes or no no, that the question associated with it is the guess, is the thing that it guesses. And if it guesses wrong, it asks you, what were you thinking of? And then you tell it, and you say, well, what differentiating question, what, what's a question would differentiate it from what I guessed? And then you add a question and say whether the answer is yes or no. And it adds another node for you. So it learns. And I hooked this up to speech. And I seriously just got it working literally 10 minutes ago. Right. And so when it asks you what you were thinking of, then it uses a dictation grammar. And of course, I did some training on it. So it's fairly accurate to my voice. So I would say something like a sandwich. And they would say, what differentiates a sandwich from a pancake? (laughs) (laughs) I feel so Battlestar Galactica. It's not even funny. (laughs) Anyway, let's get into, uh, let's get into better know framework. Awesome. So, you know, I've been talking about the speech API. Yeah. And, uh, this class is, well, it's actually an event on the speech recognition engine, audio level updated. And this happens several times a second when the level, when the input audio level changes. And it's basically from zero to a hundred. So what it's really for is setting a meter, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a VU meter. Sure. So just attach it to a progress bar and, you know, make the minimum zero and the maximum a hundred and set the value. And you've got a little audio meter. Nice. That's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah. Simple, useful, know it, learn it, love it. The other thing I've found, Richard, is that um, it's not easy to get a really high-quality TTS voice, text-to-speech voice. Microsoft Anna is kind of crappy. She's the one that comes with Windows. Mm -hmm. And there are companies that sell them, but they don't just let you download them. Oh, no. You can't just, like, buy them and download them. You have to. Yeah, that would be too easy. You have to uh, call them. 
and then you tell them what you're working on your project. And if they think you're worthy of them, then they grant you a license for umpteen million dollars. How nice of them. Seriously, that's the way it works. I, I have yet to find something as simple as pay this money, get this TTS engine, but we'll, we'll see. All right. If anybody knows of any really good quality TTS voices out there, let me know. So, who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 708, which was the show with Yuval Lowy talking about business architects. And, you know, it's interesting how much the comment engine helps us measure people's reaction to the show. Right. So, uh, we get a lot of comments on shows anyway. This one particular show has nine, which is not an extraordinary number, but I'm telling you, all the comments are several paragraphs. Yeah. Which I find interesting. It's different well, he really than, gets people thinking. If she certainly did. So I grabbed the comment from Tom Kiefer, who said, This was, for me, one of the most interesting and engaging recent .NET Rocks discussion. And yes, that is saying something. Wow. I've worked for organizations that have established various different architect roles, application architects, business architects, enterprise architects, solution architects, but we're often ignorant and or vague on the specific definitions and of the relationships between these roles, often handing them out to senior developers who weren't necessarily architect ready at the time, myself included. This typically resulted in environments which sounded mature in terms of staff titles, but instead frequently stumbled over themselves, sometimes quite spectacularly. Yeah. Obviously, establishing roles with these titles isn't remotely sufficient. A clear, and he emphasizes clear, and preferably documented understanding of what each of these roles is and does and how they interrelate and interact is vital to their usefulness in any organization. I've seen various sorts of online resources attempting to define these more clearly, and frankly, Yuval's exploration of the subject was one of the clearest ones to me, but is there any sort of clear or industry standardization of these terms and their roles established or emerging that we might watch and reference and use to help our managers acquire a better understanding of what these title buzzwords means and how they might be useful to an organization? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, Tom? No. It's <laughs> <laughs> short answer. The short answer. Uh, you if know, you that, find maybe our, one, let us know. I think our guest might even be able to help us with that particular one yeah, too. Perhaps uh, I think we've got the right guy to, to address that. But it's a big problem. I totally agree. People are handing out architect titles like they're candy without any real structure and, and so forth, and it's bad. It's uh, bad, and we, and we do have to fight back with that and insist. I think it's pretty reasonable to push back in your organization and, irrespective of title, just set up the clear flow of process one way or the other but uh i don't envy you tom but i will send you a mug to drown your sorrows in and if you've got some great questions or concerns or ideas about shows just want to let us know what we could drill deeper into write a comment on the website at net rocks.com and maybe steve uh has some input there we'll talk to him in a minute but first i got to tell you about pluralsite.com Pluralsight.com is offering a free trial for 10 days, 200 minutes uh, access to their vast library of hardcore developer training. Uh, they release 8 to 10 new courses every month. They have a full curriculum on software practices, including courses on design patterns, test-first development, object-oriented design, continuous integration, and Scrum. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Pluralsight.com. So, uh, Richard, I think, uh, this is going to be one of my favorite shows because, um, when Steve McConnell was on before, it was 
perhaps my favorite show for a long, long time. Steve McConnell is the best-selling author of Code Complete and Rapid Development, winners of Software Development's Jolt Award, as well as Software Estimation, Demystifying the Black Art, and other titles. In 1998, readers of Software Development Magazine voted him one of the three most influential people in the software industry, along with Bill Gates and Linus Torvalds. Steve has served as editor-in-chief of IEEE Software Magazine and chair of the IEEE Computer Society's Professional Activities Board. Since 1996, he has been CEO and chief software engineer at Constructs Software, C-O-N-S-T-R-U-X Software. Welcome, Steve. Welcome back. Hey, thanks uh, for having me. I'm glad to be here. What did you think of uh, that comment? <laughs> uh, that was a long comment, uh, like you said. Uh, uh, I'm not sure I really understood the comment. Well, I think the main concern Tom had there was that there's all these different roles that have the word architect attached to it, like application and business and enterprise and solution architects. And this goes back to a show uh, with Yuval Lowy, where he sort of talked about this idea of a business architect. And uh, Tom is battling with the fact that they've got all these titles handled out, but really no clear definition of what each of those rules really means. Right. No no clear definition, I think, was the was the main point of it. Yeah, I think we've kind of reached the same point with uh, the architect title that we reached in uh, the U.S. anyway several years ago with the engineer title, which is... Uh, uh, gets watered down with so many different uses that it it really doesn't have any meaning anymore. It's true. You don't operate a railroad car? What? <laughs> <laughs> Steve, what have you been doing lately? What are you th- What are you talking about? Thinking about? Well, you know the the. I was just looking up when I was on your show last. It's been I can't believe it, but it's been more than four years ago now. Yeah, and yep. time definitely flies. Uh, uh, so. My attention over the years has really turned increasingly toward uh, what is needed to make software organizations run at the executive level. And uh, if you look at the progression of books that I've written, Code Complete obviously started out very detailed, you know, very aimed at the, uh, the workers in the trenches who were actually doing the real work of a software project. Uh, rapid development was a bit more of a, uh, focused on technical leads and managers, uh, and then my professional software development book probably uh, stretched a little bit too far, maybe, and it was uh, more of an industry-level book. Uh, but in the meantime, I've kind of throttled back a little bit and uh, been looking a lot more at what uh, executives need to do to support really good software development. Hmm. Or what they need not do, perhaps, is <laughs> That's a the case better maybe. way to frame it. Yeah, those, what? those matter. So... Um, do you when you when you look at the big bad world of software development do you find executives are getting in the way more than they're helping or is it the other way around uh, well i think uh, just with software as with software development practice itself there's just a tremendous range of competence uh among executives just as there is among uh uh hands-on software developers so sure. I've had the opportunity over the years to meet some really exceptionally capable executives, and from time to time I run into someone who I candidly would say doesn't seem like they know what they're doing. Uh, and, and the problems are similar, actually. I think that for many years, uh, in, well, we start with maybe project managers. For many years, I think 
Uh, I would say over the last 10 years, that actually has come into clearer focus. But I think in many organizations, what the director level or VP level person is supposed to be doing is is quite unclear still. Yeah, I um, my my experience has been that uh, uh, as as a manager or as a as an executive to sort of step out of the way and let the people do uh, under me do their job until it comes time to make the big decision, and then timing is critical, and of course the decision is even more critical. I think there's always a fine line there, and the really good executives do a great job of of walking that line, but you have to be giving direction to the staff. You have to be setting a clear vision. Vision, yeah. That vision-setting process has to be collaborative enough that the staff buys into it. It also has to be directed enough that the vision is clear and it isn't just a mishmash of different people's opinions. Uh, And I'm, I'm a big fan of setting really clear objectives, setting expectations early and often, uh, and then getting out of the way once you've done that and letting people do the work. And then you just, you know, you, you guide people based on are they performing to the objectives you've set. You don't yeah. try to get into the details of did they do it the way I would have done it. You really right. focused on were they aimed in the right direction. And as long as they're aimed in the right direction, then you pretty much let them do uh, use their best judgment. Of the executives that have been uh, very talented and very good at what they do. What percentage of them do you think are have been software developers in the past? That is a great question. Um, and uh, due to the the nature of the work that I do and the, the how we come into contact with executives, which are are often people who read one of my books ten or fifteen years ago, and uh, like many others in the industry, have continued to grow in responsibility. Uh, you know, whether there's a selection bias in the sample or not, it's pretty darn close to 100% have some yeah. software background. I, I could certainly name some exceptions, but uh, it's, yeah, it's probably 90 to 95% software development background. I look at a guy like Scott Guthrie as a really good example of that. You know, somebody who understands software at the bits and bytes level, and but it also has just incredible vision and is able to rally his people, you know, to his cause and motivate people. Yeah, I think the challenge as you get into larger organizations, you know, when you're managing 10 or 20 people, I think it's pretty common for for uh, managers at that level to still have very detailed, hands-on software development knowledge. As you get into larger organizations where you have to have the management expertise and the leadership expertise to lead a staff of 200 or 500 or 1,000 people, I think it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, for those people to maintain the, the technical chops that, that maybe got them promoted much earlier in their careers. So that becomes a real challenge because you've got to uh, retain the uh, respect of your staff while also being honest about the fact that your technical skills might be 10 or 20 years out of date. Uh, but I think the good, the good uh, technical executives do, do in fact do that, and their staff respect them for having been great technically at one time, but now really being great as a manager and a leader. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, 
agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I think that when I talk, think about really successful leaders of developers, they're the guys who, who run interference against the, for the, the devs, let them focus on what's important, but also really push on better documentation or better understanding of the project or better training, like getting more than what, you know, I think often, especially the development level, we just try to get to the code too soon and insisting on a clearer vision, insisting on more resources so that guys have greater chances of success, like really facilitating that success is the defining difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really interesting point. And what that makes me think of is that I think the job description for people once they get to the director, that is manager of managers level or VP level, is really pretty undefined in most organizations. And so you know, I like the elements that you define trying to free up technical staff to really focus on the, the main work that they're doing, uh, running interference, uh, and uh, and then maybe making maybe making some of the, the toughest technical calls, um, but or at least uh, making sure the, the product or project uh, direction is really clear. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I think there are very few organizations that have even an attempt at a job description for the jobs at that level. If they do, the job descriptions are very HR sounding, <laughs> you know, can mm. uh, sit in a chair for eight hours, uh, can, uh, you know, type effectively at 40 words per minute, stuff like that, that really has little bearing on on, on the real job. Uh, and uh, and so I've spent a lot of time the last uh, last uh, 10 years uh, really digging into, well, what really is needed in those jobs to be effective and uh, what would a job description look like and, and how would somebody be good at that job? So to me, that's, that's gotten to be an interesting topic. And I, and I gotta think the reason you focused on that is that you see that as the weak spot in the development chain these days? I, I don't know that I would say it's the weak spot as much as it is the highest leverage spot. Yes. Uh, you know, if I could talk to the CEOs, maybe that would be the highest leverage spot, but that top technical executive is, uh, is often the highest level person in an organization that I will have any contact with, with any regularity anyway. And so that's really where I've been focusing on as the person uh, who can make the highest leverage difference in the rest of the organization. So getting back to this idea of really good executives having a background as software developers, how do you explain Steve Ballmer? <laughs> can I have a no comment on that? <laughs> Um, that's me, that, Fireball Franklin. That's just mean. Yeah. Uh, come so, on um, now. I mean, you know, seriously, because he obviously Microsoft is a very successful company, but I, I kind of tend to think of Microsoft as lots of software companies run by one 
uber executive and uh you know his, his focus is clearly business his background is clearly business but everybody below him is pretty much in that role that you're talking about and maybe it's just the it comes with the size of a company like microsoft yeah you know microsoft is actually i think uh Microsoft is exceptional in many ways, and <laughs> the way in which it's except, exceptional, I think, has shifted over the last 20 years. Uh, but I think you have to go back in time a little bit and look at the history. And, and uh, yeah. I think this is not well known outside Microsoft, but when I was on campus at Microsoft 20 years ago now, uh, I would say that the most respected technical person on campus was probably Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. And right. outside Microsoft, it was very common to hear people say things like, oh, yeah, Bill Gates, you know, technically mediocre, but business genius. Inside Microsoft, mm. nobody thought of him that way. Inside Microsoft, no. you would often hear stories about, oh, I was at a barbecue, and Bill happened to be at the barbecue, and he asked me what I was working on, and I told him, and he asked me a bunch of questions about my design, and as a result of that conversation with Bill, I realized I needed to do throw out my last three months of worth of work and do it over. Right. And that was with no him having no prior preparation or anything, just the guy who's super sharp technically and could ask probing questions and quickly understand the essence technically of what people were working on. I don't know how many times I heard stories like that, but they were, were rampant. And uh, so, so what you had was the top guy in the organization who was both the top manager, but also incredibly skilled technically. And and the history that's given rise to is Microsoft is very unusual in contrast with many of the other organizations we work with, where you'll have fairly high-level managers who are still doing hands-on, like contributing production code into the the projects that they're managing. We don't see that. You know, I could name, I could literally name one other company where we've seen that but it, that is really rare. Yeah, it, it seems very unusual, but it, it it does seem remarkably prevalent at Microsoft even today. Yeah, as much as Microsoft has evolved in that respect. Yep. Uh, and I, and I, folks that I've talked to at Microsoft always, from years ago at least, talked about their projects going before Bill that he reviewed every single project on a routine mm. basis, mm. which sounds astonishing when you think about how many things were going on inside of Microsoft at once. But that he had, you know, insight and and pushed projects forward based on these reviews. Yeah, I don't know how long that continued. I mean, they got to the point, probably at least twenty years ago, where they had thousands of SKUs, and I don't know as a practical matter that he could have, you know, if he devoted half an hour to each project, that he could have gotten through the whole project list in a year. So I sure. don't know how true it is that he reviewed every single project. But I do know from people that I knew who were going through Bill G reviews that uh, <laughs> people took those reviews extraordinarily seriously, and uh, and he was definitely a technical force to be reckoned with. And I don't think anybody there uh, underestimated him. Sure, I never ever thought of him as anything but a technical genius. Um, you know, in terms of his technical abilities. I mean, I've I had heard some of those stories, and I'd heard. Uh, you know, the, obviously everybody knows the stories about, you know, writing basic, you know, to write a, a compiler and an interpreter in your dorm room or whatever, you gotta, you gotta have something going on. You know what I mean? I mean, especially with the tools of the day. 
Yeah, I think the I think the the level of drive there obviously is something that hasn't changed. The the focus of where he applies his drive has has certainly changed. But yeah, uh, you know, and and I you know my hats off to him. I I I have a lot of admiration for the guy. I think it would be so easy to accomplish what he's accomplished and and uh, reach the level of affluence that he's reached and to basically just sign off and go sit on a beach somewhere and right seems to be the last thing from the guy's mind he's finding a way to contribute uh and by all accounts is devoting an extraordinary amount of energy into the bill and melinda gates foundation i i have a world of respect for that well and it's actually working richard didn't you read something about how malaria is pretty much on the on the decline in africa yeah one of the theories right now is the the vaccine that he's distributing, which they figure is only 50% effective, combined with the net distribution and, and, and support from other organizations, they may have actually broken the back of malaria because malaria only spreads when a mosquito bites someone infected and then bites someone else. Uh. And so if you can just take half the people out of the equation... The, the probability goes down dramatically. And then he said, it's not like one day a sign pops up that says you've killed malaria. It's that over time, malaria, the, the malaria cycle goes downward instead of upward. And it's apparently going downward now. So he may have cracked it. Yeah. That wouldn't that be an amazing, amazing lifetime achievement. Yeah. I'm with you. The biggest. Yeah. Heck of a thing. I, I don't want, I hate to drag us back to practical matters, but <laughs> I, I made the mistake. Well, maybe a mistake. I tweeted that we're talking to you, Steve. Uh-oh. And a storm came streaming in. And, uh, and one of the most common questions, several people asked this was, uh, your look at, you know, code complete, which uh, really predates the whole agile movement. If you were going to do a code complete three, you know, what, how do you see agile fitting into that? I'd like your opinions on agile in general. Yeah, so we can certainly spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, I think code complete is, complete is mostly at a level of detail that is largely oblivious to agile or non-agile. Uh, I think agile has. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do with Code Complete when I first published it, which has been 18 years ago now, uh, was really to to legitimize talking about detailed software construction issues. And I think people mostly assumed those practices. Uh, they certainly weren't taught in school. And uh, I wanted to elevate the status of those practices and get them out on the table and say, hey, you know, we should be talking about the detailed ins and outs of how coding and debugging and uh, unit testing and these detailed construction activities are done. Uh, uh, and I think Agile shared that spirit in the sense that Agile, uh, well, in the Agile Manifesto, the focus on uh, working software and the focus on, on uh, trying to engage customers via the working software and so on. Uh, and then as in the first couple of years of the Agile movement with extreme programming, focusing on uh, test-driven development and coding standards and, and uh, pair programming, really activities, practices focused at the code level, mm-hmm. uh, uh, really uh, extended what I had been trying, the emphasis that I had been trying to achieve with Code Complete. Um, so having said that, I think there's a shared, maybe a shared emphasis there on, on uh, detailed coding work, but otherwise, you know, what caused me to revise Code Complete in 2004 didn't have anything to do with Agile. It had to do with 
changes in the programming environments and uh, changes in the languages that people were using uh, really had more to do with uh, the universal uptake of object-oriented programming, which mm. we don't even talk about now because it's just the way things are done. Um, uh, so at the code complete level, I don't know if I were to do a code complete three, and I have no current plans to do a code <laughs> three. I uh, just want to make that really clear. Uh, I can't, you know, it's at least five years before I would even contemplate thinking about a code complete three. Hmm. Uh, I just don't think that, I don't think any you know, things have changed all that much. I think code complete two could probably use more of an emphasis on uh, scripting languages than it had. If I were to do it over again, I might beef up that, that coverage a little bit, but um, otherwise I, I think uh, it's still reasonably current. Sure. And it, and actually, in some ways, a lot of agile practice relates as much to project management as it does to the actual coding practices. I, I think certainly as, as agile has evolved, I completely agree with that. You know, back in 2001, 2002, uh, we would have had a different discussion. But these days, I think when people say agile, mostly they're referring to Scrum. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and... Uh, I think Scrum, my my description of Scrum or definition of Scrum is that it is a project-level technique for managing workflow at the project level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's nothing technical about that except that the work the work is technical. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, just for the record, uh, I, think, uh, I think Scrum has clearly emerged as the best of breed of the Agile practices. Uh, we have seen many organizations succeeding with Scrum. Uh, I think it took us uh, the first half of the first of the last decade to get to that point. There were some false starts, but I think uh, from 2005 or six on, uh, Scrum was in a, was in ascendancy and still is. Uh, and we certainly see far more organizations succeeding with Scrum than failing. Uh, and a lot of times when we see organizations failing, it's because they're not really doing Scrum. Right. And uh, so, yeah, so we're pretty, at Constructs, my company, we're we're pretty high on Scrum. We have a lot of service offerings, uh, training uh, classes and consulting because we have seen Scrum emerged as a best practice. And that's that's what we're focused on. And it, it said not the only practice, but one that seems to be broadly applicable, that a lot of different teams of varying skill and size can be successful with it. Varying skill for sure. Um, I think that when you get beyond, you know, a couple of teams whose work has to be coordinated, uh, I think by the book Scrum uh, becomes more challenging. And the mm-hmm. reason I say that is I go back to my definition. Scrum is really a project level tool for managing workflow at the at the team level. Uh, I think some people say Scrum is great. Let's scale it up to our hundred person project. I think that it's great to continue using Scrum at the lower levels of that 100-person project. I think if you rely on Scrum to meet all of your project management needs for that larger project, uh, you're going to have some pretty significant gaps because it really isn't Scrum's area of applicability. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we have seen companies struggle uh, as they try to scale up Scrum, especially if they're being a little bit too purist about trying to keep uh, only use practices that have some sort of approved Scrum label on them. Sure. And uh, but you know if you bring in a little bit of traditional large project management practice, and and layer that on top of uh, mostly Scrum uh, implementation at the team level, that that can work great. 
I want to poke it, and I, and I don't mean to keep doing this, Steve. I want to poke it one other thing in Code Complete because I went back over it recently. And uh, at the time that you wrote Code Complete, you were not all that keen on continuous integration. And I wonder if you, you know, what your viewpoint on continuous integration is these days. Yeah, that's a that's a a good question, and I would say that my attitude has probably shifted a little bit as I've seen various companies uh, uh, experiencing it or using it effectively. Uh, one thing that's happened with continuous integration is that the the meaning of the label has shifted a lot. Since mm. I don't know where the term originated. I first encountered it via Martin Fowler, um, and at the time, continuous integration really meant continuous, meaning uh, you know you you saved a file and everything would be recompiled in the background as you continued to work, and it literally was continuously integrating. Right. Um, the way the terminology has evolved, at least what we've seen, is we see a lot of project teams that will say, we're doing continuous integration. And when we look at it, it looks an awful lot like what I had described years ago as daily build and smoke tests. Yes. Uh, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Just at a higher, maybe even a higher cadence, but not, you know, much Just because now we're using the ASP rabbit or whatever, or the USB rabbit, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah, whatever and, that thing is, Richard, that you that you have to show, you know, lava lamps and stuff. Yeah, but it's still a daily build. Yeah, and it, it may not even be a higher cadence. It may be, uh, well, and then maybe this just goes back to various people understanding the same words differently in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the daily build and smoke test, there was never the expectation that individual developers would build only daily. The expectation was that the project would build at least daily, and individual developers would be building as often as they needed to, which could be five times a day. It could be 20 times a day. It was just depending how often they needed to build to, to be able to check what they had just had just created. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and I think some, some people have interpreted that cycle as continuous integration, which I think is fine. Uh, you know, I think that I continue to think, which is probably what I said several years ago, I continue to think that there can be benefit in letting uh, the code loosen up for very short periods of time. So if, you know, we as a group uh, for a day need to kind of let things fall apart so that we can make some really big changes before we bring them together tomorrow, uh you know, I think there's often value in that. Now, yeah. I think if you let that yeah. go more than, you know, more than a day or so, then I think you're asking for problems. But but if you're thinking if the schedule forces you to make a build and that keeps you from innovating, then that's a problem. Yeah, although I think that, that, that what you just said is used as an excuse many, many more times than it's actually identifying a legitimate concern. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, my going in position would be, and I've said this to many of our clients, is I don't care how complicated the software you're working on is, but you need to be building, you really need to be building every single day. Now, you know, you could have a group of people who say, we're going to have a coordinated set of check-ins and we're going to hold off on check-ins for a couple days. I don't have any problem with that. But, but I'm very much in line, you know, one of the disciplines of Scrum is that the product is supposed to be kept at a potentially releasable level of quality at all times. And I think that's a very important discipline, and I think that actually is one of Scrum's bigger contributions, is if you don't let things get a little bit unraveled, then you can't, they, they can never get a lot unraveled. Right. Mm. 
Richard. Yes, sir. You know what time it is? It's prize giveaway time. Yeah. That's right. We're going to give away a prize. We're going to do this in every show from now on. We're giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection, but only to members of the .NET Rocks fan club. Mm-hmm. What is that? Well, it's just an excuse for us to give stuff away. If you go to .netrocks.com slash fanpage.aspx or just go to the website and look for the big shiny graphic. Can't miss it. Uh, we just ask you to answer a couple of questions and then your we have your your name your email we're going to pick a we're going to pick a winner at random in every show we'll send you an email you respond back you get it a telerik ultimate collection which is everything they make nice who wins this week and this week the winner is mark Servais. Ah, congratulations, Mark. $2,000 with a groovy Mark software. Mark from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah, software to Wisconsin. I like yep. it. Congratulations. And so uh, if you want to win, just sign up. Now, there's more to it than that. Mm-hmm. We're going to give away an annual prize, a big one, a big technology giveaway every year in December. Five grand worth of technology. And trust me, it'll be awesome. Yeah. We're still trying to decide exactly what that'll be, but we go crazy when it, things like this happens. Nuts. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get back to the show now. I've been working on a project where we had a, you know, three guys want to do something really challenging, and essentially took a fork of the code, mm-hmm. and the, and there was a commitment in the scrum meeting that said every day you're forked decreases your likelihood of ever coming back. Yep. So, uh, you know, it's literally day each day we're going to talk to you again about what is the probability you're ever going to get back into the main branch again. Wow. And uh, it certainly keeps the heat on. Mm. You know, and again, when we talk about executive roles, I think one of these elements is the heat of, you know, the risks. We're, we, are we reminding ourselves that we're taking a risk here? It's very easy to get off a fork and get lazy. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to go exploring these things and just sort of fall off. So, you know, at the management level, the fact that, we remind ourselves of the danger we're in with software when we do these things. And, and I think, too, one of the occupational hazards of being a software developer is a lot of us are in the field because we find it interesting. Mm. Interesting does not necessarily equal generating business value. And, yeah. uh, and so I think one of the functions of the executive is to make sure the team stays focused on, okay, guys, this is interesting, but is it also producing business value? And and like you said, I like the example you gave of just putting some visibility on the level of risk that different approaches are are uh, imposing on the project. Uh, I mean, I, I like the story you described. I think that sounds like a, a good management practice, and you know, I would imagine shining a bright light on that on day, at the daily standups and saying, okay, you know, what is what's your integration risk or your ability to to uh, bring the fork back. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that seems healthy to me. Mm-hmm. If you, if the answer to the question, "Can we sell this?" is, it's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. It's so cool. Um, do you do you think that the increase in developer productivity over the last, say, ten or twelve years has done anything? Um, has done significant change to, um. Uh, procedures for software development methodologies. Well, that's yeah. Or do that's, we just do the same thing faster? 
I think that's an important point that people sometimes uh, overlook or misunderstand that when we look at uh, when we look at quality assurance practices, quality assurance practices are motivated by one of two things. They're motivated by uh, obviously a desire to have to achieve some ultimate level of quality in the software that we're shipping. Uh, so whatever the target quality is for the released software. The other thing that motivates a focus on quality is economics. Uh, that is, we think it's cheaper to build software if we keep it at a potentially releasable level of quality than if we let the, the quality level slide uh, in the interim phases of a software project. Uh, that That scrum motivation for keeping the software at a potentially releasable quality level is really more of an economic motivation than a target quality motivation, despite the way it's worded. And so as as uh, time has gone by and we've gotten different development practices, and especially as computing power has increased extraordinarily over the length of my career, some of the quality practices that were motivated by economics early in my career don't make economic sense anymore, given the computing power that we've got now. There are other ways to accomplish the same level of release quality uh, that are cheaper than the the seeming focus on interim quality uh, that might have been used 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, practices like uh, uh, continuous integration, pair programming, and so on, uh, you know, may indeed lead to a, a and just the ability to do, like, well, actually, yeah, those examples are bad examples. A better example is unit testing, uh, where 20 years ago we had people, really, really smart people like Harlan Mills, who were making arguments like the more CPU cycles you use during development, the lower uh, the quality of the release software usually is. <laughs> and oh, that's uh, funny. Was, that was based on a model of how people would use those CPU cycles that really doesn't exist anymore. And so... You know, do I like to see developers doing unit testing? Yes, I like to see developers doing unit testing, despite the fact that there were some very smart people arguing 20 years ago that that would be the worst possible course of action. And and I think, it again, it comes back to the economics, which have changed extraordinarily over even the last 10 years and certainly the last 20 or 25 years. You know, I was, and I was thinking when you we were talking about... Um continuous integration that one of the things that happened to continuous integration or the build process in general is that it just got so much easier you know there's a huge chunk of in rapid development and code complete that talked about what it takes to actually have a good build process today yeah. that largely comes out of the box i remember when the build process used to take an hour and you know this was for a fairly good sized piece of software but you know that that's not that long ago and now continuous integration seems like a fantasy to uh, us back then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we had, you know, we had clients when I first published Code Complete in 1993 that would say, we'd love to do daily builds, but our build takes 27 hours. Right. And uh, so we, as a practical matter, we can't do it. We still have, we still work with some companies who uh, you know, work in, in certain kinds of technical environments where the build will take hours. Uh, where there's still a significant amount of work involved in actually uh, making the build. But yeah, we have other, other cases where what would have taken hours to build years ago now can be built in five minutes or something like that. Right. So, uh, what about 10 times software development? 10x? Yeah, 10x. Uh huh. 
That that's just your 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 blog stream, or is that going to be a new book title? Like, where is that going? Uh, it's not. I don't know that it's going anywhere. Uh, the title of my blog, which I have not been very active on lately, is 10x Software Development. Uh, we have a class called 10x Software Development, which uh, is a well, very broad class that uh, includes uh, what we see as uh, best practices that span the software development lifecycle, essentially. Um, I think it's uh, it's really my intent in using that label is really just use it as a rallying cry, and with the background idea being that we've had many studies over the years that have found that the best developers are at least ten times as productive as the as the worst developers. Right. And and moreover, I think more to the point, have also found that the best teams, even within the same industries, are ten times as productive as the worst teams. Yeah. And uh, and so. It's really intended to be more of an inspirational moniker than anything else. Uh, you know, the the fact of the matter is, in my day job, as opposed to my writing activities, uh, we look at hundreds of companies a year, and the vast majority of the companies we look at are are in fact average. The development staffs uh, are are in fact average, which Everyone's- seems kind of sensible, really, doesn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> let me put it this way: the bell curve. Uh, is a lot more concentrated in the middle. It is a really skinny bell curve, right. a huge concentration right right there in the middle. I think more concentrated than you'd naturally expect. Hmm. And uh, every once in a while, we'll run into a company that'll surprise us because they're doing so well. Mm-hmm. And it happens infrequently enough that often it will actually take us a little bit of time to to realize, oh, yeah, these guys are actually different. They're doing things better. Hmm. And... Uh, and of course, it's always fun to see those because we always learn a lot when we see those companies. But um, yeah, I think it's really just intended to try to uh, be a help to help battle complacency and overconfidence and and uh, make people realize that they're no matter how good they are, there's always room for improvement. Well, and I and I one of the blog posts of yours I read that was talking about the whole uh, 10x improvement thing was the idea that. You know, just because your theory ten times more protective than the guy next to you doesn't mean that you're ten times underpaid. More likely, that guy's overpaid. <laughs> yeah. But either way, this has very little to do with pay anyway. The whole, yeah, I wrote a blog entry at the beginning of this year, uh, 2011, that got I think about as many views as any blog posting I've ever written, and the the title was something to the effect of "If there's a 10x difference in productivity, why isn't there a 10x difference in pay?" Uh, there are a number of of underlying issues there. One is that while we can measure 10x differences in productivity on individual tasks, for there to be, for that to call for a 10x difference in pay, that 10x difference in productivity would be have would have to be sustained day after day, month after month, year after year. And if somebody's 10x more productive in burst mode, but then they settle down and aren't 10x more productive for the next, you know, the next week. Uh, and you go through the whole year, and maybe over the course of a year, they're actually two times as productive, not ten times, because they can't sustain it. Right. Um, and then the other factor, I think, is that is that productivity, when we talk about 10x, tends measured pretty narrowly. It can yeah. be measured as lines of code or number of story points or whatever that somebody generates. But in a team environment, that's not the only aspect of productivity that matters. You know, if somebody is willing to do 
the drudge work that nobody else is willing to do, hey, that person is being productive, and it may be hard to measure just how much they're benefiting the team by taking on those assignments nobody else is willing sure. to take on. Well, the same thing for the testing personality. You know, that may not be my favorite guy in the world, but boy, oh boy, he makes my software better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I think it's a pretty complicated topic, and early in my career, I felt that observation applied to me. I was like, well, why am I not getting paid 10 times more than this guy? Because I know I'm 10 times as good as this guy. And ultimately, I realized that probably should be happening is that that guy should be, you know, maybe I should be paying twice as much and that guy should be paying, being paid one-fifth as much. But the fact of the matter is, if that guy was being paid a fifth as much, he wouldn't even be making minimum wage. Right. So, and so, you know, the real outcome of that is that guy was probably in the wrong job and uh, needed to change to some different kind of work. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Steve, we got a question from the Twitter storm from Jeffrey Dalton. What recommendations do you have for virtual teams that span time zones? Yeah, so that's, uh, that is a very current topic. Um, most of the companies we work with these days have teams at multiple sites. Many have teams in the U.S. and, and someplace offshore at least at least five or six time zones away. Uh, you know, I wish that there was some rule of thumb. It would be nice if you could publish a, a pithy uh, column that said, okay, here are the 10 keys to success in, in uh, working with distributed teams. Uh, you know, the, if there's one rule that's at the top of the list, it's the rule that is probably the hardest for companies to swallow, and that is you've got to have a significant amount of face-to-face time uh, and you've got to have that fairly often over the course of the project. Uh, I had a senior manager at a, a large company tell me one time, the way he put it was, the half-life of trust is six weeks. Nice. And uh, Whoa. That's a great statement. Isn't it? Yeah. It nails it. it uh, it's the whole, you know, we pull strange loop where everybody works remotely together once a month. Mm-hmm. And it's because you're right. It decays. If you don't take care of it and replenish it routinely, typically with pizza... It decays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's there's an awful lot of value in working shoulder to shoulder with somebody, in going out for beers after work, in having dinner in their homes, you know, meeting their families, uh, seeing what their office environment looks like, you know, understanding what their commute looks like, all that stuff that you'd think has nothing to do with the technical work, but it has everything to do with when you're talking to the guy on the phone 2,000 miles away or 10,000 miles away, and the guy says, hey, I wasn't able to get this checked in last night because, you know, my commute was really bad. You have some understanding of what he's talking about. And, you know, your frame of reference might be, oh, how bad could the commute be? And that guy's frame of reference might be, you know, it could be, make it basically impossible to, to do any work. And, sure. And uh, so, yeah, I think that, that knowing who that person is on the other end of the, the, the uh, web conference or whatever it is, um, goes an awful long way. And, and you know, the, the problem here is that a lot of companies have 
moved a lot of their development offshore to save costs, and so, uh, which I think is a bad motivation for doing that. Bad, bad meaning ineffective and ultimately un, unsatisfiable. But because of that being the motivation, they also don't want to spend money on travel, getting people to 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 uh, have face to face time. And you know, we've seen like one one case that we saw with one of our clients is they acquired a company that was nine time zones away. They felt they had a pretty good um, technical synergy between the mothership uh, code base and the company they acquired, and they they probably did, but they wouldn't spend a dime on travel for the technical staff. They had executives go back and forth a couple times a year, but didn't have the technical staff go back and forth. And so two or three years went by. They were not able to get the two code bases talking to each other, and ultimately they uh, divested themselves of the company they'd acquired because they felt that the integration was technically infeasible. And it wasn't technically infeasible. It was just infeasible with the constraints they'd placed on it, which was no face-to-face contact at the technical level. You know, this could have been solved by technology had they just implemented a neutrino-based LAN system. <laughs> every, everything would have been fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Do you... uh? Yeah. Turns out to be false anyway. Neutrinos, <laughs> neutrinos can't go faster than light, can't go back in time. Okay. Um, do you have any ideas, um, I'm sure you do, that you could share uh, about future software and what it might look like? You know, some of the natural user interfaces that are coming up. Do you see this as um, sort of, and and I realize this isn't much about shipping software as it is, uh, just software in general. What, what do you think about these new interfaces? Yeah, so I love it when I get a chance to play software visionary or software prophet. Um, uh, I, I think that, you know, I've been in the software field for uh, a little over 25 years now, like 27 or something. And I have to say that in the, the computing environment, I think this is probably the most interesting and least stable period since I started working in the software field. And, you know, when I started working, it was really in the transition from mainframes to desktops or PCs. Uh, and that lasted for 10 or 15 years. And then we had a transition to web. And and I think we started to make a transition from web to mobile. But I think that we've just had this explosion of various devices. We've got um, We've got phones and we've got portable music devices and we've got... Uh, pads, and these things have been coming out so quickly, and the variations are happening so fast that I I think anybody who tries to tell you what the computing environment is going to look like five years from now is just taking a wild shot in the dark. I think this is an incredibly exciting and innovative period to be in, and and uh, you know I, I think you could predict that the devices will get smaller. I think that's a pretty safe prediction. Uh, right smaller and more portable and more aware of their location, more context sensitive. Uh, other than that, boy, I, I would have a hard time saying. Yeah. And I, I think smaller is and and more embedded in things is probably that, that trend is probably going to continue as well. And I wonder you- if the, the smartphone isn't the, you know, isn't the Holy grail for all things. Yeah, and when you look at how fast tablet prices are coming down, five years from now we'll be able to buy those in the checkout line at the supermarket. You know, maybe that's only two years away. Yeah, 
I, I, I've always thought you wouldn't pay for them at all. They would literally be, you know, included with your subscription to the Wall Street Journal kind of thing. <laughs> and they'll be on the same stack as the Wall Street Journal. So you'll yeah. pick up one. Yeah. Just everywhere. They come with barbecue sauce, sweet yeah. sour. You know, so we're we're getting along in the show here, and I don't want to get let you get away without talking about the Bellevue School Board. Uh, <laughs> I can't let you get away, Steve, because obviously, you know, if you're getting into politics, something's happening in your head. You must be getting older. Yes, that's right. I'm getting older and more senile. <laughs> so you want to be in politics? No, I. The last thing I want to do is be in politics. Um, so uh, I did run for the Bellevue School Board, and I did. I did win the election. Congratulations! And uh, so I will be sworn in uh, in 11 days, and uh, look forward to beginning that set of responsibilities. That's a uh, obviously a part-time volunteer position. Uh, if you look at the history of what I've done in software, I don't think that that's a huge uh, a huge leap. Actually, I've put a big emphasis on uh, trying to uh, raise the bar on programming through publishing books and through my IEEE activities. Uh, I was heavily involved in uh, professionalism activities for several years through the IEEE, trying to raise the bar on on professionalism standards and and support improved capabilities that way. Uh, I think this is really just taking the same focus and applying it to the district uh, that uh, my kid is in. And uh, uh, it's funny, for somebody who has read my books, they would find that my, my focus in my school board campaign, I think, is very identifiable and predictable based on my books. I, I ran on a campaign of, of uh, openness and accountability and community engagement, and I think those actually are... You see those in my in my uh, writing activities as well. I you know, I've always uh, believed in the open management style, and my company's actually been recognized as the best small company to work for in Washington State twice. Uh, uh, accountability, I think, is a huge thing, and I've often said I don't see how you can run software projects without it. And uh, you know, in terms of community engagement or just accessibility, I've tried to make my books uh, as accessible as possible. I've tried not to put on academic errors or that kind of thing, and, and uh, my focus for the school board is really the same. So uh, there were a few changes I wanted to make in our local district. Uh, I don't have any interest in politics other than getting in and, and trying to affect a few specific changes, and uh, with any luck, it'll be four years and out for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that, Steve. Thank you. And man, it's been so great talking to you. We, we ought to do this uh, before another four years passes. Sounds, do this yeah, it's been far too long. Yep. All right. Well, keep doing what you do. And listeners, thank you very much for listening. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. 
online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band 